right. So we have everyone signing in. This is exciting. We have um, the recording has started. So just um, as with previous trainings, we will be sending out the recording along with all of the materials. So when you see links in the PowerPoint, please note that the links will be live when you receive the um, the PowerPoint for the um, for the the training. And so I would just like to welcome you uh, to this week's training series. We have a jam packed agenda. We have several of our partners here who will be talking about data collection and confidentiality, along with some prepared questions. We also know that you may have questions uh, that pop up along the way. So please utilize our chat and we will also open up for questions as our panel um, begins. So Tracy, next slide. Just a quick recap um, of the agenda for today. What we're going to be talking about is just, as I mentioned, um, a quick recap of the previous two trainings. The first is Data 101. The second is our census training. Uh, so there will be live links on the next slide that you'll see. And today we'll be talking about some data collection methodology and um, really the focus and the the tour de force uh, that we have for our panelists uh, will be the, the bulk of the time today. And that is um, how organizations, both within Loudoun County government um, with our departments and our nonprofits, collect data and make sure that we have confidentiality and our clients' best interests at heart. So we will be spending the majority of time on on that presentation. And then we will have a Q&A, but as with our previous trainings, if you do have questions, please put them in the chat. Please um, raise your hand. We will acknowledge you um, and then uh, we will unmute your line. And just a brief um, note that we have asked for challenges with data over the last two trainings. And this may have been in the registration link. This may have also been from some of our content analysis of questions over the last two trainings. And what we have noted is um, that there are a couple of challenges that we will be addressing today, not only finding and using existing data appropriately. Um, we will be talking a lot about that in our next presentation, which is exploring Loudoun County data. But then the one that we will really focus on today is encouraging clients to disclose confidential information. Uh, this is a challenge for nonprofits. This is a challenge for anyone in the human service area where it's really um, a, just a difficult conversation for someone who may already be in crisis to then disclose even further information that they would like to keep private. And we want to make sure that you have the tools to not only collect standardized information, but also have the tools to be able to de-identify data or to um, balance um, the, the necessary data with uh, programmatic improvements. And so, you know, that's where we're going to be focusing today. Next slide. So we do have a poll um, and just along the same lines um, as the previous slide, 
We know that encouraging clients to disclose confidential information is a challenge. So what we would like for you to do is participate in the poll. Um, Tracy will be putting the mentee link in the chat. And what we would like for you to answer is what specifically about the data makes it hard for clients to disclose? What is it um, in your experience that is that information or that conversation? What makes that difficult? And what makes it hard for clients? What have you heard from your clients? And we'll give that a couple of minutes. We'll give you about 30 more seconds. Ooh, these are good. These are great responses. Systemic racism, stigma around receiving assistance, mistrust of government authorities. Absolutely. Fear that there would be obstacles to benefits, sensitivity around the diverse nature of the families, you know, will they get it, right? Um, you know, we do work in an area where there are multiple diverse families and the, the diversity of our staff may not reflect the diversity of our clients. That is, um, an issue when when we see some some clients who are struggling and they don't have anyone that looks like them or speaks their language. Um, that's really difficult to disclose because that's that could create mistrust. It could create um, a, a difficulty with building rapport um, and gaining access to some of these confidential uh, pieces of information. Um, Excuse me, my allergies are going a little crazy today. Um, so also labels are not consistently understood and accepted. That's a huge one. Um, we we hear about that from early on in, you know, birth to five populations all the way through adulthood where labels stick with a person, whether that be internally or externally. Um, that could be and is a valid fear for them. Those are great responses. Um, I think that really does sum up what we are looking to discuss with our panelists today. So as we move into the series a bit more, um, just a quick recap. As I mentioned, these links are live. So when you get the copy, in your inbox after the training, these you will be able to access the meeting recordings for both Data 101 and our census training for the American Community Survey. So you will have those at your fingertips. All right, next slide. So now we're going to talk about um, very briefly data collection methodology 
and specifically what funders need and why data is so critical, and especially data that is sensitive to clients and is a difficult conversation to have. So let's talk a little bit, next slide, about what data funders need. And this will be also um, illustrated in our next training in the series when we talk about exploring Loudoun County data. But in general, funders need data that tells your story and tells it in an appropriate way that not only describes the need, but also the context of the community in which the population you serve lives, right? So um, I always talk about it as a funnel. You know, you start with the general context. You start with community data, census data, um, you know, existing organizational data that helps to describe that context. And while Loudoun County may have the highest um, household median income in the nation, that doesn't mean that it is without need, that our, its residents are without need. So how do you describe that in context. That's what funders are looking for. And there's plenty of data to help support your argument. We just have to make sure that it's available and that you know how to use and access that in the context of the community. And then as you narrow down, what about your target population helps to tell your story? What data do you have about increasing or decreasing outcomes that either support um, positive outlooks for the community and positive impacts for the community versus um, discouraging negative impacts. How can you provide that context for your target population? We all work with at-risk groups. Um, so how do you set your data up in a way that says this area is worthy of funding? And this area, specifically the data, support and demonstrate the need. Uh, the second large bucket of information that funders are looking for is program evaluation. And specifically, um, you know, long term impacts. So when we think about it in terms of a logic model, we all have um, heard my spiel on logic models <laughs> time and again. Um, so I won't bore you with that, but I do want to make sure that that you there is that urgency uh, that a logic model does help to define and illustrate what the resources you have available to you are. Um, and if there are additional resources, where those would go. Um, and then your activities are actually a part of a logic model. Those resources lead into the activities and help to support the activities that support the populations you serve. And from those activities directly, you should see outputs. You should see counts of individuals who um, either complete or have progress towards a goal in your program. And by counting those individuals, you are getting a direct understanding of what it takes to complete a program or what it takes to be able to complete your service. 
But that doesn't stop there. The counts then should lead you into a logical extension of outcomes. And those are short, mid and long range outcomes. These data should be in place and you should be able to collect those from clients in a way that is meaningful for your organization, but also meaningful for a funder to understand. And we'll talk a little bit about instrumentation and um, validity of, of specific instruments and data, because ultimately what the plan should do is illustrate anticipated outcomes and illustrate increases or decreases in your target population's quality of life and their mental health and stability in their housing. So you should be able to demonstrate those long term. And then the last um, that funders, especially the federal government, is looking for is evidence based practices. And there are several ways that you can identify evidence. Um, there are multiple clearinghouses, depending on the type of services you provide and the evidence, um, the level of evidence that is available for the interventions that you provide. There's also your own evaluation data. If it is an evaluation that is conducted with standardized instrumentation and standardized standardized processes, along with implementation fidelity, you have some evidence that you've collected of the effectiveness of your program. And really, um, that evidence helps to support your program evaluation and then links to your community data. So really, the funnel helps to tell the need, explain how your program can be effective, and then the evidence-based research connects it to a larger practice or a larger area um, that supports further development of the service and further refinement of the service that you provide. So you are improving your programming through this cycle and through the funnel. Next slide. So I've started on this already and I promise I won't get too much onto a soapbox, but um, evaluation data really is critical when we think about how to measure and determine the effectiveness of our programming, but also to provide information on how to improve the project. You know, we all have, I think, um, a moniker, especially when I was in the nonprofit world, um, of, you know, building the plane while we're flying it. We all have done that. <laughs> but you have to be able to have some of the necessary instrumentation. You have to have wings to be able to fly the plane. You have to be able to train people while you're flying the plane. Um, and so really evaluation data not only helps to determine effectiveness through summative measures, but also helps to build improvement cycles. And um, that can't be overlooked or, you know, said with any um, more importance, really part of the evaluation is improvement of services. And this can be the same for how you collect um, data for your own implementation and improvement. But also when you think about evaluation data and program effectiveness, you want to make sure that you are as impartial as possible. And so sometimes that requires independent reviews of outcomes, independent data analysis, and really focusing on someone who is outside of 
your services to be able to look at your data and say, yes, you are doing the right thing. And here's the statistical uh, results that back that up, these tests of significance and hypothesis that really demonstrate that your program is effective. And so we, we do encourage improvement science and implementation science when you think about how you want to evaluate, because often um, evaluation is expensive if you want to move this to um, an external entity. But also you can think about it um, from how you want to um, how you want to receive the data and analyze the data. And I think I just saw a question in the chat, so I'm going to pause for just a second. Can you suggest tips um, for doing this on a budget? And um, contracting is not always possible. Absolutely. Um, one thing that through my graduate experiences and um, then also being a part of academia for several years, um, there are always graduate students looking for thesis options, for doctoral dissertation options. Um, sometimes it's a matter of going to the dean of uh, a school of education or a school of social work and asking if there are students who need projects. That is a great way to not only give the student an experience um, in real world implementation, which often they don't get until they get into the real world. Um, and it gives you an external evaluator um, and somebody to challenge some of the assumptions that you make in your evaluation and in your implementation. So that's one way. Another is to um, create partnerships with um, staff from other organizations who may have statistical experience or backgrounds in um, evaluation and utilize their time in a shared capacity, right? If you, if you have similar services or similar target populations, you can utilize, um, you know, staff in, in interesting ways. The, 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 it, the sky's the limit when it comes to how you put together your staffing. And so part of this really is um, figuring out what's going to work well for you. But I highly suggest um, looking at graduate programs. That is a huge has been a huge success. And we do have one panelist, I believe, who's um, who's going to be talking a little bit about that, who was a graduate student um, and and was brought into the nonprofit world as as a result of that. So so she can probably um, discuss that a bit further. Great question. Other questions on evaluation data or improvement science, implementation science? All right. So next slide. What we've tried to do is break this down in some ways that help you to prepare for data collection and prepare for instrumentation in a way that's meaningful for you, but not to overwhelm you. We only have two hours. Um, so I want to make sure that this is this is something that you can come back to for reference. And really what we're talking about here is preparing for data collection. Um, often the services are front and center. 
always. You have intake forms, you have um, progress reports, you have a lot of variables that you already are accountable for as a result um, of improving your client services and making individualized um, accommodations for your clients. So what we've tried to do is think about that funnel and think about evaluation data that could be collected and what it informs. So this table just simply puts that in, in a format that asks a question, what does my community need? And then the uses, you know, what does it inform? Why does this question matter? And then some methods for data collection that you can use to help answer the question. And so really, this is just a, a very simple way of looking at how you can design a methodology that fits with your needs, but also targets data collection. Um, so we can talk a little bit about um, the community need, which is that extant data. Uh, you want to make sure that it is informed by your mission, but also aligns with the mission. Um, we do see, especially as a result of the pandemic, um, a lot of mission creep. Um, and that is because you as organizations and the broader nonprofit um, world saw the need and wanted to make sure that residents in the county and in the nation were taken care of and had their needs met, those emergency needs. So now, um, as we move from COVID crisis into inflation crisis, maybe it's time to take a step back and think about what does the data collection align to in our mission and make sure that there is that alignment. Um, this also helps to inform program design. So if you have a population in your community that is a service area population that has special needs, what are those needs and how are you designing your program to fit those needs? The same thing with organizational capacity. If you see the need and you see it increasing, how are you adjusting um, organizational capacity based on data? So again, it's that evaluative cycle and that improvement cycle that you continue to go back to when answering these questions. And then methods for data collection are very simple when it comes to just a, addressing community need. And that really is, you know, something as easy as existing community data, which we'll talk about in the next training in our series and how to access the data that Loudoun County has um, available to the public, but also um, addressing uh, state and federal data that are also available in addition to the census. So you also have your own organizational data that you can utilize when it comes to aligning your mission and making sure that your services fit with um, with the expertise that you have. Do you need additional staff? Are you doing a staffing analysis with um, with their specializations, licensure, et cetera? How do you know when you need to bring on new staff? What do the caseloads look like? All of that feeds into that program design. So. Um, that method is is um, something that you should have at your fingertips. A question also is how to target services. Uh, this really does get to our equity um, information and how we inform the equity um, conversation. 
about our services. And all of you have this challenge. Um, we do at the county level as well, because targeted services should be equitable. How do you make that so? And what data can you collect? And can you plan to collect to make that happen? So we've included a SWOT analysis as, as a potential method, um, just because it allows you to brainstorm and think outside the box. And so SWOT, if you're not familiar with it, is um, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And essentially what that does is help you to manage what's in your control in your organization and what is external controls to your organization. What do you need to manage that may be outside of your control and who can you help with, uh, you know, bring in to help with that? Um, or what do you need to do to pivot to make sure that a threat doesn't become larger um, to the community? And this is really helpful when you're thinking about your clients' needs and the equity lens with which you look at your data. The next is who am I serving? Um, really, these are intake forms. These are basic statistics that you can do to help inform you know, the client profiles that you have in aggregate and in what ways that these client profiles in aggregate can help you to evaluate whether it's effective for everyone, is it effective for a subset? Is it more effective for one population or another? And then in what ways do you need to tailor to make it as effective for all? And you can look at your progress data. You can look at doing a content analysis of progress notes um, of your, um, your records, the client records, as long as they're de-identified, to be able to think about what the service model is and how it may need to be adjusted to be more effective. And then that does get us into this effective question. Um, we often look at client assessments and benchmarking as a way to um, determine whether the program is effective. So there are a couple of different ways in evaluation that you can do this. The first is looking at your program compared to a gold standard in the evidence-based practice world, right? Um, if you have the same population, you have the same um, services that are implemented with fidelity, then you can determine um, whether the program is effective related to a gold standard. But in, in some cases, in many cases, actually, a gold standard may not be accessible for the population that you are serving. So you may have a system or a manualized process that you collect multiple pieces of data on. And you can use client assessments as long as you have standardized instrumentation um, that is applied in a uniform way across all your clients. You can analyze those data and look at your logic model and hypotheses that you have related to client progress and increases in client outcomes, their positive outcomes, to be able to determine effectiveness. And there is a difference between effectiveness and impact, which is our next question. How is it making an impact? 
Effectiveness is the program as it relates to the individual's outcomes. Impact is a longer term um, outcome that not only brings into account your client's outcomes, but the outcomes that that may have more generally in the population that you're serving um, as a tertiary um, group who may not be receiving services, but are seeing the benefit of these services echoed through the clients that you serve in those popular, uh, excuse me, population outcomes. So there are a number of different ways that you can do this, but we've just provided a few methods um, that help to kind of walk back those specific questions. And I think I saw a question in the chat. Let's see. Do you have any tips for how to ensure data collection is accurate if your nonprofit is not directly engaging with people receiving services? That is a great question. Um, there are several methods that you can use that support accurate data collection. And I think this would be part of your partnership. So maybe we will address this a little later um, because essentially there are several different ways you can do this. First is through training, um, training your partners to be able to collect data reliably and make sure that it's collected in the same way, the same time, the same place, answering and asking the same questions um, in a standardized way. Also, um, being able to be accountable what we've done with other organizations in, in some of my previous work in evaluation is have reliability checks. If you have a standardized protocol and practice, then you can have someone who is designated a reliability anchor. And they are always um, like 90% or higher accurate in the instrumentation and the data collection. So you can designate a person to review records or step in and um, co-assess to see if the records are matching and see if the instrumentation and those results are matching to make sure that it is something that is a reliable method that is being consistently applied over time. And then um, also, as Tracy put into the chat, you know, you can also address this with MOUs and partnership agreements. So you can build these practices into an MOU um, in terms of reliability and data collection that you have an annual training or that you have a reliability anchor who tests 10% of all of your assessments to make sure that it aligns with the standardized metrics that you should be using. Great questions. All right, next slide. So just a little bit more on preparation and, and I wanna make sure that we're capturing not only that you have questions that you have to answer and protocols that you have to do, you juggle a lot of things when you're collecting data. Um, data collection often is not your sole responsibility as the, the organization. You have to provide those services and data collection sometimes takes a back seat to that. So how can you set up 
your data collection um, and your methods in a way that fits best with your needs as an organization. And again, this is going to require you to take a step back and think about in what ways you can select the right protocol. And some people call this standardization. Some may call it instrumentation. But really what we're talking about is a uniform way of collecting data across clients that shows the exact same process over and over and over again. So once you have a data collection protocol, everyone should follow it. And that requires training. Um, the, the best way to do this in terms of best practice is using existing validated tools. Tools that have evidence of validity and um, measure the constructs that you need to measure as a part of your service. And then also thinking about how you can build this into your delivery model already so that it doesn't seem as if it's something secondary. You may be talking to a client, doing some intake, taking down um, basic information that will help with services. Oh, and by the way, we have this pre-assessment that we have to give you. That to clients is, is a difficult conversation because that may be out of the flow of what you're already doing with intake. Um, what you already are doing with your um, with your process and with the services that you're providing. So how can you build data collection into something that you're already doing? The instrumentation could be the same um, in terms of the assessment. How you approach the assessment in a standardized way will be what your organization needs to decide. The other is looking at the clear intent and description of the tools. And again, making sure that there's uniformity and decreasing the opportunity for human error is really key. Uh, so when you think about tools and instrumentation, even if it's something that you have in Excel, Excel has ways that you can limit characters, that you can limit ranges so that if someone is entering data, um, you don't have to worry about seeing a 99 instead of a 9 or instead of an 8. Um, there is a way that you can limit the, um, the drop-down or the data validation. So we will have some of those for you as part of the Bring Your Own Data. Um, we'll have some of those tools that help you do that if you're not familiar with them already. And then last is making sure that you have adaptable data sets. Um, and this is really key for those who may have different um, different either data collection models or have different funders that require you report the data in different ways. So, for instance, um, we've had this conversation with some of our ARPA grant recipients where we are collecting data for age, let's say, um, according to census categorizations, but other funders may require it as 0 to 18, and some other funder may require it as 0 to 12, you know, 12 to 16. So really what you need to think about is how you can gather that data and calculate it any way that you need to. 
So the, the lowest kind of most discrete variable is what you'd want to get to. So rather than asking them to check a box, which may be easier for the client on what their category of age is, maybe it's date of birth. And then you compare that to the date of the assessment and you come up with a chronological age for the client. And then that way you can put it into a box um, for the reporting categories that are necessary. All right, next slide. All right, so um, these are just some uh, primary data collection resources that would be at your fingertips. Uh, these are things that you would be collecting as you, the organization and your staff would be collecting. And so this is just a, a very brief listing of what primary data sources are. Next slide. There are also secondary data sources that we'll be talking a little bit more about in the next um, training that really focus on how you can connect data to your mission and vision, how you can connect data in your CRM, how you can connect data to your evidence-based practices. And if there's not um, a great deal of evidence that supports this in terms of national models, what evidence do you collect? And make sure it's the best evidence possible so that when you do go back, you have confidence in the data that it was collected in the same way utilized in the same way um, through a primary source instead of secondary. All right, next slide. Some of the next pieces are, okay, you've prepared for this. You have a protocol in place. You know that at step one, you do intake. At step two, you assess for a pre-needs um, assessment for your client. You have a pretest that helps to um, establish a baseline. But then what happens when you train staff to go out and do it, right? There's less control over that in the execution of data collection. So really when you standardize some of the protocols, you wanna make sure that there is enough training for your staff and not just annual training or every 100 clients, um, but it is regular, ongoing check-ins of the data. Using the same instrument over time also is going to help you in um, your data collection and kind of the execution of data collection. Because once your, your staff who are collecting the data get more familiar with the instrumentation, the easier it is for them to talk about the easier it is for them to collect in a uniform and standardized way. And then you can test the reliability of their data collection. Um, and we just talked a little bit about that. Every 10th visit or every 10th client, you have a reliability anchor who walks in and helps to support with that. That becomes a regular practice. Clients don't get freaked out because they tend to see this. They see it happening. Um, it will be uncomfortable to begin with, but that's a part of that staff training that you help build in. Also, making sure that you are educating your clients on what to expect. They're in crisis. Um, they are coming to your organization for help. 
it's one thing to discuss the help that they need, but it's also important for them to know what comes next and to have something that's a manualized or standardized process that you can say, okay, here's B, here's where we're going to collect some data from you. Here's where we need to know if you're doing okay. And literally laying out and educating the client on from start to finish what's going to happen. Here's how we can individualize it for you. But generally, here's how it's going to happen, um, which does require manuals and frequently asked questions that are in client language and um, accessible, which means at low levels of reading, right? So it's not something that would be what we're discussing today on instrumentation, right? No one no one cares about that when they're a client for a nonprofit. They don't care about the instrumentation. They, they come to you for help. So how to make education and the manuals relatable to them so that it shows their needs. And then some of the question mapping that we just demonstrated. Um, not, you know, uh, in my previous job, one of the things was we would always say, don't collect data to collect data. Don't collect data for data collection's sake. There is no reason that we should have 150 questions when really 50 will do. And it's the way that you ask the questions that's important and the way that you collect the data that is necessary for you to provide services, but also be able to run analysis on that shows the effectiveness. So if you feel like you're collecting too much data, take a step back and look why. And if you don't need the data to help you evaluate the effectiveness of your program or to help you answer questions about your service model, think long and hard about why you're asking the question. Okay. All right, next slide. The last is just a little bit about um, evidence-based practices and kind of how we we pull this together and um, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but really evidence based practice when we think about it is this. Middle part of the Venn diagram, right? It does take practitioner expertise. It takes the research and evidence that supports that expertise and then how the client values are implemented um, and how they are held true. So for evidence-based practices, there are a number of ways that they are deployed across um, organizations, across um, categories, across services. So it may look different depending on the service that you're providing. But this is a general sense of it's not just research, research, research. Evidence comes from your own experience, too but you have to have data to back that up as a practitioner, okay? All right, last, we will go ahead and just turn this over to Barb really quickly to talk about the importance of some of the data that we collect. And um, this is just a couple of departments. We will be hearing from um, Department of Family Services and Mental Health, Substance Abuse and Developmental Services um, for some of the work that they do. So this is just a very small cross-section. 
Good morning, everybody. Um, the importance of this data. Um, some examples of where Loudoun County collects data include our human service nonprofit grant application process, the restricted transient occupancy tax fund, the American Rescue Act plan or plan act, um, the conservation easement program, the continuum of care, our community development block grants, our volunteer fire and rescue uh, department collects a lot of data, as does our economic development through their business grants. The county also collects data from citizen requests to emergency response times to permitting and business licensing. Why does Loudoun collect that data? Um, to be responsible stewards of taxpayer funds to be responsible to state and federal programs. Oftentimes uh, we are the path or we, we get funds through um, state and federal programs. So we're responsible to um, um, answering to their quarterly or annual reports. For data equity, um, we also wanna understand our population, our community being served. We also want to understand program effectiveness um, and then as well as performance. Why is data important local government? The use of data plays an increasing role in designing, delivering, and transforming public services to improve outcomes and drive efficiencies within current financial constraints. The data collected in a local government can be instrumental in improving service delivery gaining valuable insights from the community and operating more seamlessly across departments. We will talk more about this um, and local data in our April 28th um, workshop called Data and Grant Seeking, Exploring Loudoun County Data. With that, I'll turn it back to Megan. Excellent, and so we are almost on time <laughs> uh which is what is which is very good for us um we i tend to get a little verbose when it comes to talking about data so it's just very exciting for me okay so now without further ado we have some very esteemed panelists who are joining us for for really their discussion and their take on some of the questions that you may have regarding confidentiality and data collection best practices. First, we have Elise Martin, who started with Loudoun County four years ago. In her first three years with the Department of Family Services, she started a data quality and compliance program, which is responsible for the department's performance data, internal audits, fraud, records management, contract and grant oversight, and information technology. She does a lot, <laughs> as do all of our um, panelists. She was then promoted to the Assistant Director of Internal Operations, um, where she now oversees the QDC program, Emergency Management, the Continuum of Care, and the Child Services Act. Next, we have um, our esteemed colleagues from LAWS. Deborah Gilmore is the CEO of LAWS and has a 30-year career in child welfare and family, uh, child and family welfare. She spent more than a decade in leadership and management roles requiring data analysis and reporting. She previously helped guide states um, for their local child welfare agencies on the use of their data and relevant research in planning and decision making in her role as a research strategist with the National Capacity Building Center for the states. Liz Weaver is the Director of Finance and Grants with Laws. 
where she has worked for three and a half years. As you may know, Liz, she also was a county um, employee for a while, so she she understands both worlds very well. Um, in her current role, she manages laws grants at every stage of their life cycle. Prior to joining laws, she was uh, with local government for 15 years and um, focused on budget and grant administration in the city of Alexandria and here in Loudoun County. For Legacy Farms, uh, we have Lori Young, who is their executive director, and Lori uh, serves as uh, the guiding and strategic strategic visionary <laughs> for program evaluation, innovation, product design, and business development. Um, prior to Legacy Farms, Lori served in an executive level position in Silicon Valley, reaching new programming and product lines. And she also holds a master's from Virginia Tech and is the strategic consultant with expertise in program development and new program launches. Faustina Mora, also with, um, with Legacy Farms, is the director of programming. And Faustina is responsible for mentorship, refining program progress tracking, personal evaluation, and self-reflection tools. She holds a master's in public health from Baylor University with a concentration in community wellness and serves as a U.S. Army Reserve non-commissioned officer. For Loudoun Hunger Relief, we have Trish McNeil, who's the deputy director, and she's responsible for client service operations, general fundraising, grants, volunteer operations, marketing, and communications. She's been with LHR for eight years. But prior to that, Trish had a 35-year career at, that has spanned marketing and development roles, including positions with the Metropolitan Opera Association, Columbia House, AOL, and Oatlands. So she has resided in Loudoun County for more than 25 years. Lots of differences um, in 25 years, for sure. And last but not least, our esteemed colleague from MHSADS, Hannah Hirschland, is the associate, or excuse me, assistant director of business operations in MHSADS. She's a social worker by training and has spent most of her career working in quality improvement and operational roles. She joined Loudoun County government in 2019 and prior to that spent over a decade working for nonprofit human service organizations in New York City. So, I am just more than pleased to be able to introduce this group um, and, and really walk them through some key questions that we have for each of them. But we also want to be able to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. So if with that, we'll go to the next slide. And we will start with Elise. Thank you very much. Um, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> everything you said there, Megan, was was absolutely wonderful in in everything you were presenting, and I'm I'm honored to be here. So so thank you. Um, I am with Family Services. I have been with the county um, for four years now, but I had a career in the commercial world for 30 plus years, um, where I did do quality assurance, um, account management, and uh, metrics. So that was that was all underneath me um, in the commercial world. Um, I am I'm very happy to be here and speak with all of you today to give you the, the best that I can give you. Um, and and I look forward to working with several of you offline as well as I do so uh, through the continuum of care. So so thank you all very much. Excellent. Thanks, Elise. Next slide. Lori. 
Hello, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for um, inviting Faustina and myself to present. We're really excited to be here today. Um, I have been working with Legacy Farms for four years as executive director, building the program really from scratch. It was founded in 2012 by Martha Schoenberger as for the summer program. And we refined it into a, a mentor apprentice program that goes pretty close to full year round. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're representing small organizations here. And um, Faustina has been with us for uh, since the beginning as well in developing our data metrics and our processes and procedures. So she's going to be able to really comment on if, if you're an early organization looking at how to make that effective and refine it and you're on a you're on a budget because we have the our humble <laughs> organization budget of 275,000 which is increasing rapidly each year but nevertheless it's a lot to manage um, she's going to be able to answer a lot of the questions I think that come up on uh, some of that early definition and refinement of data taking. Um, we focus on supporting neurodivergent individuals with disabilities here in Loudoun County, providing educational training and workforce development. And, um, you know, those are we're really excited to be here. So thanks a lot. Yep. Thanks, Lori. All right. Next slide. Liz and Deborah. Hi, this is Deborah. Um, the, uh, and thank you to Barb and Megan and Tracy for having us here and for all of you um, for this opportunity as well. Um, LAWS will be celebrating its 40th anniversary next year. We are the designated provider of domestic violence and sexual assault services for the county. Um, and really, we are looking to provide safety, hope, and empowerment so that survivors across our county live free from the effects of violence. Um, we do that now with a team of, uh, we just actually hired two new people. We now have a staff of 33 people and like Legacy Farms and other organizations. When we think about it, everyone really does play some sort of role um, related to data. And that includes, you know, direct services staff, um, not just entering data, but really they're the ones who are um, um, serving our clients and understanding who those people really are, what their needs really are. Um, and then, you know, we all play a role in taking a look then together and, and um, at what we're seeing um, over time um, and trying to really assess that in, in terms of, as they, as you all said, you know, the, the community and uh, sometimes the nation as well, um, how we look the same or different. Great, thanks, Deborah. Next slide. And then Trish McNeil. Well, good morning. It's still morning, right? Um, I wish we were all in the same room because this is such a great group of people and thank you for having me as part of it. We are allowed in hunger relief, so you know what we do. We uh, distribute food around the county at uh, 10 different um, service periods and multiple different locations throughout Loudoun County, both at our Leesburg main location and at various locations in the neighborhoods that have the most need. Um, we've been around for 32 years now. I, I think I get a COVID hall pass to use the 30th anniversary logo for a little bit longer. Um, and we have grown exponentially during COVID. We had to scale to almost four times our size in the first month after uh, COVID hit and the need has not decreased. The service numbers have not gone down. Uh, I think laws is probably seeing the, the same kind of trending. Um, so we have uh, great people on our client services team who are primarily responsible for our data 
collection from our clients. And they are also, like laws, the ones who are the, on the front lines providing those clients with our services and helping clients find other services. Um, just happy to talk data. My, my previous career was in direct marketing, where I did just a lot of macro data. And I, I do love it, and it makes everybody's eyes roll over here. But I'm, I'm glad to be here the, today. Right. Thanks, Trish. And our other county government colleague, Hannah Hirschland. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here. I'm Hannah. Um, I uh, am the Assistant Director over Business Operations in the Department of Mental Health, Substance Abuse, and Developmental Services. Um, what that means is um, I work with our staff who are in um, human resources, finance, compliance, and then quality assurance um, and administrative support. But I really feel like being on this panel um, is bringing me full circle because the first uh, 15 or more years of my career were in the nonprofit world, um, helping, um, I would say, probably mid mid-sized to larger nonprofits build their data systems, um, I've done two big health record implementations, and so thinking about how data gets, how, how you collect the data, how it gets into your system, and then what you can do with um, database on the back end. I also serve as the county's um, HIPAA privacy officer, and I'm happy to talk more about privacy and data confidentiality kinds of questions. Um, and I recalling from at the beginning when people were mentioning some of the issues with um, collecting information from individuals and hearing stigma come up and things of that nature. I'm also um, happy to talk about some of those as we get into the discussion as some of my former positions. I mean, first of all, I work with, you know, populations that are currently stigmatized and in previous positions at other organizations, I worked with the LGBT population, people who were HIV positive, et cetera. So I've got some experience there and I'm so excited to be here with you all. Great. Thanks, Hannah. And thanks to everyone. So without further ado, we will get into the panel discussion. Each of the panelists was um, provided with a list of questions to uh, respond, both in writing and then we will talk about their responses um, for, for the duration, for the remainder of our time together. And so you will also be provided with the written um, responses to each of the questions from each of our panelists. So to get started, the first question that we wanted the panelists to answer, and we've we've kind of halfway assigned um, the questions for uh, this is for legacy farms, DFS, MHS ADS and laws. Um, how do you build your data collection systems to collect robust information while still keeping client need and fast paced programming at the forefront? And then we have several um several contingency questions, but really how do you anticipate challenges with meeting funder reporting requirements, um, knowing that your client is in crisis and requesting services? So we'll get started with Faustina first, and then we will go down the list. Thank you so much, Megan. Um, okay, so I'll jump right into it. So the way Legacy Farms has really thought about this question as far as how we're collecting a lot of information and keeping the client's needs at the uh, forefront is that we've embedded our evaluation processes into our programming. So when we're taking data, for example, um, if it's questionnaires or something, we will build that in in a very specific pocket of time during our program. So that might be different for each group. So 15 minutes in the beginning and we really kind of time slot it. So we're hitting all of those requirements and embedding it. So we're not 
taking up too much additional time for or away from our programming. Um, so I feel like we're pretty good about pacing our data collection, which I think is really important. And uh, you can build that in with your intake processes, with whatever sort of um, vocational training or beginning of program, end of program sessions that you're doing as well. Um, we've also tried to make it very clear what the process is and put timelines in all of those so that we can continue to deliver our programming in addition to collecting that data. And we really anticipate the challenges um, when it comes to when I first got brought onto the program, looking at other programs that were like us and what data they were um, collecting, what our funders typically looking for. And I feel like that's a good starting point, how you can anticipate any challenges or anticipate the needs of um, reporting requirements. Um, and then really just making it um, training your staff on how to do that and collecting demographic data as well as your program objectives and leaving that at the forefront. So um, really wanting to show the impact of your intervention, I think, is always um, how you anticipate that. So you can kind of plug and play um, when you're reporting um, those to any other grants that are looking for it. Great, thank you. And so um, the next sub question um, is related to clients in crisis um, as they're requesting services. When you know your client is in crisis, what data do you collect? And this question is for our laws colleagues and Hannah. Thank you. Um, there's a couple of things that um, that we keep in mind. The client's needs always come first. Um, so if a client truly is in, in crisis, we're going to manage the crisis, manage the feelings that come along with that crisis um, before we do anything else. In the course of that, in our natural conversation, we may already be gathering data. And so it's really paying attention to um, what we're learning about the client as we go. Some of that, you know, we you, you talked about a little bit um, earlier how some of that you can fill in in the intake form or whatever forms you're using later. Um, so we really also try to set um, a trust relationship um, from the forefront and let folks know what our boundaries are. That means that everything we do is survivor centered. It's it's guided by what that person is um, interested in, what they're ready for. Um, that also means that every single thing that we ask them, whether it sounds like a demographic question or it's something else, all of it is voluntary. Every single thing we do is voluntary. It's guided by the survivor. So setting those boundaries um, up front is another way that we're um, we're managing to collect what becomes our data um, throughout the process. Great, great, thank you. Um, and just to echo what um, Deborah was saying, we always address the client need first. So trying to de-escalate any acute um, crises and and you know be with the client in what they're experiencing when they first come into us. We um, in particular are the um, organization that serves individuals um, experiencing psychiatric crises. And so you work to de-escalate first. And then we've set up our, um, our health record, which is really where we collect the vast, vast majority of our data, such that it's relatively easy to navigate. There are some areas if you're not sure if the individual is going to, you know, fully enroll in service, whatever, you know, whatever that means for your organization, where it's, it's pretty straightforward and easy to collect that information. And then there's a more kind of structured data area 
um, if they're going to need our services a little bit more intensively. Um, we walk through the flow with our clinicians as we were setting up the health record to make sure that it was going to work for them. Um, and we really focus on collecting, balancing, collecting the minimum data fields that are required for our funders while also meeting the needs of the individual who's presenting to us so that we're getting the information that we need to provide the best service while not overwhelming with so many questions about things that might be interesting or that we might want to evaluate later. Um, it really is a balancing act to make sure that you're meeting the needs of the individuals that you're serving, you're meeting the needs eventually of your funders, um, and, um, and de-escalating uh, any crises. Great, thank you. What considerations do you take into account as you're building your data collection practices? And this is for Elise and Faustina. I'll go ahead and start. Thank you. Um, something that we are focusing on very closely right now is really around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so so I'll, I'll draw an example with our continuum of care and coordinated entry. As we are trying to set new priority and criteria around coordinated entry, the forefront question is diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, to make sure that we are prioritizing the needs based on the person and not just a, a, a one small scenario or situation. So we have to look at the entire picture um, and that we are not excluding anyone for any reason. So that is um, something that we are doing to make sure we are we're building that data collection set around around that. Great, thanks, Faustina. Yes, so this is data collection systems. I thought I, thought I answered this one. <laughs> Maybe I'm confused. Um, yeah, so the data collection systems that we've um, built to collect this robust information, similar to what um, many ind other individuals are um, echoing, is that trying to break up um, your d data collection so that your clients are not getting exhausted and fatigued from all of those collection processes. So we always put the client and their needs kind of upfront um, when it comes to designing systems. So whether that's during the intake process, we limit that and we don't do any data collection that day. Um, we're always keeping that in mind um, when we're embedding it into the program and anticipating those needs uh, for them as well. Um, when we're taking into account how to build them, it's really just the time and the staffing. Do we have the staffing to support the data collection? Do we um, do they have the training to do um, to collect it appropriately and making sure that we have that kind of oversight as well for how we're designing and collecting that information and doing that, keeping the um, confidentiality always up um, in the forefront of their mind as well. Um, and I might add, if if I may, just just one thing. Um, Dusty is really the expert on this. <laughs> that um, from my point of view as an ED, one thing we focused on is making uh, certain pieces of the data collection very naturalized, so they're part of the daily process. So if uh, a, an apprentice or someone we're working with is reporting certain aspects of their work that day or certain experiences that they had that are relevant to our data collection, that becomes a very naturalized flow. And so it doesn't feel so much like data collection. And so whenever you're able to do that, that is very helpful in a lot of different ways, gives you a lot of flexibility. 
Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And um, I think each of you has touched on this last sub question about building a set of questions that can inform an adaptable data set um, where you can look at the varied needs of funders for data. Um, does anyone have any additional comment just on how you're building those variables or how you're building that kind of most discrete set so that they are adaptable? Um, I would say that um, what you were talking about, Megan, earlier in the training about um, figuring out what questions are going to give you the most flexibility. So, for instance, collecting date of birth instead of um, what is your current age or something like that is really important. Also, the more that you can collect um, information in like discrete data fields, like structured data fields that are not. So basically anything that's not just text or like free text that people can write in, the more you're able to um, group and aggregate and run a little bit of analysis on it if you want. The free text can give you a lot of really good substance, um, but it is much harder to then turn into analysis. Great point. All right, next slide. We do have a few questions that we will get to. Um, I see plenty of them in the chat, so we will get to those at the end of, um, of the panel questions just in the interest of time. If we don't get to them, we will provide the questions and responses um, in our follow-up materials. So the next slide is, um, how do you determine who to offer your services to? How are you accountable to your organization's mission? And discuss the community data that you collect. And so um, we've assigned Trish and Liz to these questions, and then we will open it up for our other panelists. Great. Um, we at Loudoun Hunger Relief, we only have one criteria for service, and that is that you need to live in Loudoun County, and that's it. We don't means test. We don't, you know, look at it any differently than that. It's just if you're a person and you're here, and you need food, we serve. So, and and I will say that if you don't live in Loudoun County and you show up at our door, we will serve you once and refer you to um, resources within your own community. So we don't let anyone leave with no food. Uh, we are, our mission is Loudoun County and our mission is food security in Loudoun County. And we stay in that lane. So although we do a lot of referral work and a lot of data collection around outcomes and reaching out and working with a lot of different partners who I see on this, a lot of whom I see on this call, um, we do stay in our lane and we refer services to where they belong. So if someone needs the services of laws, we'll we'll bring them inside, we'll call laws for them, or we'll have them call laws from our, from our offices. If someone needs services that Legacy Farms provides will provide that referral. So we do do a lot of that. As someone else um, said, the data collection is natural to what we're doing. In order to provide food for a family, we're going to need to know how many people, their ages, and uh, whether there's other additional needs for diapers, formula, all of that. So when we're collecting data, the data collection is a part of the process of serving. Um, and then we also do quite a lot of work for accountability to mission on surveys and focus groups of our served population. So we, we use SurveyMonkey as a tool because it's 
easily translatable. It's um, something that people are familiar with from online shopping. It's an easy tool to use and it's completely anonymous, which is great. And um, we also use focus groups, which are opt-in. Um, they're not required. We make sure that no one ever feels obligated to deliver information to us in order to receive services. And that's really important to us. We don't want anyone to leave here without food because they were afraid to give us a piece of information. So we do um, flex our data collection on the individual families circumstances as well. Um, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that that does that answer pretty thoroughly. I don't want to take too much time either. Yes, it does. And we have 10 okay. minutes per, per slide. So OK, <laughs> OK. All right. And Chris, Liz? There's just something really pertinent in the chat. That's a quick question. Yeah. Um, Sherry wanted to know if you do data collection on referrals that you give out. You know, we try and track this is a tricky area, I think, for all of us, right? We try and track who we've referred to, and we do have like a notepad, like a carbonless notepad that we use when we give a, a list of referrals to someone where we check off here, call this number, call this number, call this number. These services might might really help you. We don't have a way, we're not case managing here. We're not staffed for that. We're not funded for that. So we don't have a way to trace whether that household made those phone calls. And um, that's that's been an area of concern for us for some time. And it's one of the reasons that we're moving in the direction of co-location with some of our primary referral partners. Great, thank you. Liz? I'll jump in. So LAWS is really guided by its mission in terms of um, who we offer services to. Um, we are the designated uh, provider of domestic violence and sexual assault services for Loudoun County. And so that is the primary criteria. So if you are impacted by domestic violence or sexual assault, or um, you're a victim of crime in Loudoun County, um, uh, that is, um, so we, um, the domestic violence sexual assault connection, as well as um, if you are a uh, resident or victim of crime in Loudoun County, those are um, the primary primary criteria that we use um, to determine um, eligibility and offer services to. And then um, like Loudoun uh, Hunger Relief, we also um, rely on survey data to ensure that we're being uh, accountable to our organization's mission. We specifically use a statewide survey. It's called the Documenting Our Work Survey um, that uh, provides, it's a confidential questionnaire um, that allows our clients to, um, to um, report on whether they felt um, safer, have more power in their lives. Those are just some examples. It also um, provides a space that they can um, provide just um, their own um, open-ended feedback as well. And so we really use um, that tool um, to determine whether our programs are being effective. Any of the other panelists want to jump in with any anecdotes? 
so we do actually have another question. Um, I think that's related to some of the um, the mission and service. Um, so the question is, how do you address data collection with those underserved or immigrant populations that face many other challenges? Um, language, status, et cetera. I'll ring in on this a little bit because uh, about 60% of the folks that we serve are um, primarily Spanish speaking. So all of our materials are available in, not only available, but are automatically given in both English and Spanish, uh, including intake, our frontline client services staff are all bilingual English Spanish um, and we handle other translation needs using volunteers. So we do have another subset of folks who speak Arabic and we have a volunteer on on a regular rotation who speaks Arabic and Farsi and can come and help us with those translation. And I'll tell you, Google Translate, don't underestimate the power of passing your cell phones back and forth on Google Translate in a parking lot. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but that's, that's what we're doing. We uh, make sure that we have folks on staff who speak the first language of the population that we're serving. Great, thank you. All right, so the next slide is um, assigned to Elise, our laws colleagues and our legacy farms colleagues. How do you manage the information you collect? Um, how do you combine it? How do you analyze it in different ways to tell your organizations or your agency's story? Um, what software do you use to manage your data system? And is there a time prior to a data management software. Um, how did you manage that and grow it? So we'll start with the first question for Elise and Laws. Okay, I, I'll go ahead and, and start. Um, the how do you manage the information that you collect? Um, so so DFS has multiple programs. We have benefits, child care, foster care, adult protection services, child protective services, just to name a few. They all use different systems. Um, through, through the state or the federal government um, or county, as the case may be. So we have to gather that data, very dissimilar data, and pull it together into a, a story that we have to tell on an annual basis because of the Family Service Advisory Board. Um, we tell it just for the own organization. How are we doing? Where do we need to improve? So we collect from all of those systems. And then I do have a data analyst that takes that dissimilar data and pulls it together. So from the data collection systems into um, an Excel spreadsheet to start to synthesize the data. And then we pull it over to Power BI to, to do our dashboards to understand how are we doing. Um, on, on a monthly basis and an annual basis. So that's from a, a um, from the department perspective, um, we are pulling it all together and, and telling that story. From a program perspective, if I look at the COC, we do an, an annual point in time count, which many of you on this phone are a part of, 
And the data comes in, whether it's entered into the HMIS system, we have people that go out and collect it. They can fill out an online form that we have created to, to really track that data quickly. Some people aren't comfortable with the technology, so we use pen and paper. Um, anything, because we have to train the folks that are collecting that data, what, what is the purpose of the data? What value does it bring so that they can help with the accuracy of it? And then we take that together, combine, combine it into a report, a point in time count report um, that does get submitted to the federal government. So though that data is um, reviewed and synthesized over months to make sure it is correct. It is analyzed against what sits in our data systems. Is there an error? We have to go back and work with the organizations to make sure we have it correct. Are we counting people correct? Because it will affect you guys on the phone as well as us. How much money are we receiving? Because that that is a criticality of that data being correct. And if our numbers are low and and incorrect, um, which we, we actually want low numbers in the long run, but if it is lower than what the actual population of homeless is for the point in time count, um, we do we do receive less money. So that, there is an impact. So we are very strict in looking at that data and making sure we have everything correct, which is why that particular report can take months to get correct um, because of the impact it will have. Um, so, so our, again, our biggest challenge is taking that dissimilar data and trying to synthesize it into one report um, or one, one um, dashboard to tell our story. Um, and, and again, it is that data is used for that story. Do we need resources? That's what that data is going to tell us. Do we need um, a, a budget increase? Do we need to ask the, the state for additional funding? Do we need to ask the federal government for additional funding? So, so all of that is brought together to tell that story. Thanks, Liz. Sure. Thank you. So from Wa's perspective, um, staff use the intake forms to collect the data. Um, that's one of the primary uh, evaluate or tools that we use for collection. Um, then on a regular basis, uh, staff enter um, that data into our statewide database. And then we really rely on um, that statewide database to pull quantitative data reports to really understand and analyze um, trends related to um, who we're serving, so demographic characteristics, and then also, um, you know, the um, types of services um, being requested and the volume at which we're providing them. So um, we really rely on that quantitative data combined with um, uh, individual trends that are observed by staff. So like at our staff meeting and, and other um, venues, we are um, asking um, program staff what they're seeing. And then that helps to put that quantitative aggregated data really into um, context with the on the ground information. Um, we also um, we also on a quarterly basis through our grant reporting um, process do that in a more formal way, the identification of trends, and that is um, very informative. Um, uh, one 
one big example that has come up a lot recently is that we um, we use so we take our data, we compare it um, with prior years, we look at the demographic data to really provide that context. So one example um, is um, the impact of COVID-19 on um, on our services and um, who and how many um, victims are requesting our services. So. Um, so we have uh, anecdotally um, uh, noticed or observed um, increased requests for services, but then we're able to take those quantitative reports, compare it to pre-pandemic numbers, and really um, get a much better understanding of the magnitude um, with which, uh, um, I guess, violence is occurring in our community and um, and and how that's impacting um, the victims we serve. It also really helps us to understand in terms of um, our organizational capacity um, and really drive um, requests um, for additional resources in order to um, best serve our clients. Excellent, thank you. All right, so the next two questions are, um, for legacy farms who has recently done um, several transitions from manualized kind of data collection and um, the the process for the software that they use to manage the data system to manage data collection and then how do you manage it as you grow your data collection in your system? So um, with that, I'm gonna turn it to Faustina and Lori. And um, Tracy, can you go to the next slide? Perfect. Perfect. So um, as Megan sort of alluded to earlier, I am the grad student that got brought into the nonprofit world. So um, definitely my public health background, especially as a graduate student, um, everything was very much um, about program evaluation and the importance of it and how do you do that. And I know that uh, maybe if you don't have a program evaluation in place or you're already an established organization where it's already in place and you're just focused on the reporting, it's really hard to think about it starting from ground zero. And as Lori stated earlier, we are fairly new, you know, three to four years old, fairly um, small budget and, and just young overall. So we're doing this from ground zero. Um, so really, we had to first start with doing all of the research behind what are the evidence-based practices used to deliver the services we are delivering right now, which would be vocational training services for neurodivergent individuals. In addition to, we also do self-awareness and um, personal development using mindfulness as a mode of teaching that in the in the garden, um, using our mentor apprentice style uh, of teaching or education. So first we started with kind of all that literary, like all that literature and kind of synthesizing that and getting a good understanding of evidence-based practices. Then you can go into your collect. Well, what are the best ways to collect that? You've heard terms qualitative and quantitative both being used. I think both are very important if you want to get a full understanding of what services your program is delivering and to communicate that to funders as well. Um, I would say that there's definitely, especially in grant, there the quantitative data, which is all the numbers and percentages, um, anything kind of tied to a number, 
um, that that's going to be the majority of it. But qualitative is equally as important, especially when you're dealing with um, vulnerable populations, um, because it, it, it can just kind of tell a more true story. Um, not everything is in numbers and we don't live in just numbers. So you can take qualitative data, such as what we do is um, interviews. Um, and we ask those questions as far as like, you know, quality of life types of questions, kind of, are you better off type of questions, right? So all those questions, if they self-identify as, yeah, I feel better being here, or I feel supported being here, I feel like I am learning, well, then that's an outcome and you can actually determine, okay, well, let's say 75% of our apprentices from this interview, we're able to gather that through this qualitative um, data that they feel like they're receiving services or that they feel supported and that they're receiving good training. So that's where you see this image with all the little people. That's my little image for interviews. And Life Sherpa is the application that we use um, to collect data um, is one of our partnerships. It was a service donated to us um, whose son is actually neurodivergent and really for neurodivergent individuals. So we load all of our data and questionnaires into there to sort of automize it. Um, but before that, as you can see to the image on the left, it was all pen and paper. So all the questionnaires, all the interviews was literally just notes and printed out questionnaires and synthesizing that and analyzing it from paper before we had you know, these softwares to really utilize or pay subscriptions to. And it, it took more manpower for sure, but it was still, you know, it's still the human element and, and just as valuable. And so that leads into that um, analysis piece, um, both on the, uh, on the manual side, to do it manually, you had to do that through interviews and scoring the questionnaires. And now we have Life Sherpa, which will actually score and run analytics for us on the back end of their database, which is super nice because now I'm not sitting in Excel scoring, you know, 30 different questionnaires. Um, and then we do skills acquisition as far as what, you know, showing um, learned knowledge um, as an outcome that we're able to um, communicate in grants. Program completion and staff training are really just hard numbers um, that we're, we're collecting and analyzing as well. And then this is just an example of the county's report that we have here. So the service and kind of the things that we are setting for ourselves as objectives and then the outputs, basically, how are you going to do that? And the outcomes from how you and what actually resulted? Did you do what you said you were going to do, essentially? Um, so those main ones initially were Microsoft for the software we started with um, and still utilized. You know, it's definitely Excel because you can manipulate that data a lot easier. Um, Otter AI, which is the transcription services, so I'll actually record interviews and load it into Otter and it'll actually transcribe it for me and show me the themes, the major themes or terms most used. So it runs some analytics to kind of help you guide that. Uh, we've also used, um, we did a short research study, which actually was a graduate project, so I was recruited for that, uh, which was Max QDA, and that was with interviews, and that is a more in-depth software if your organization really wants to focus on qualitative is a good one, because it'll code themes and really show you a lot uh, from those interviews and run the analytics really for you, um, and is really easy um, to manipulate, but but again, comes at a cost, so you really just have to determine what, what your budget is. Um, and yeah, so that was our time before and our progression kind of through and all the systems that we're using right now for our for our humble nonprofit.
Excellent. We do have a, um, a question here, Faustina. Are you tracking indirect impact? Indirect impact meaning? Yeah, if, if the Val, if you can elaborate a bit more. Sure, sure, no problem. So you've got your, your participant, that is your, your direct impact, but then what are the ripple effects of that person attending and participating in that program? So for instance, maybe oh. family, um, family indicators or um, other extant pieces. Yeah, so as far as kind of um, family, we, we did do kind of a parent survey before. Um, it, it fared fairly well, um, but since we're focused on the services that we're providing to our apprentices, um, that's kind of where we've drawn our focus. But I would say that if we're talking indirect, I think of quality of life for sure and kind of those lasting effects. Um, one of the questionnaires that we use is called the self-awareness and outcomes questionnaire. And that really is asking, um, it's, it's about emotional regulation. So the more that an apprentice in our view is able to um, have these tools to emotionally regulate means that they can transition to another work site successfully and without us being there. So we're trying to create all of these kind of structures, not only for skills, because skills is a hard skill, but is specific to what we're doing, right? But if we're teaching emotional coping and self-awareness, then they can transition to other work sites, which we have some, you know, we do, we don't refer to each um, other job, but we know who has transitioned on to another job. And we they usually will score pretty high on that self-awareness and outcomes and emotional regulation because they've already developed the tools and then succeed in another work site. So I guess that's indirect as far as their outplacement, I would say. Yeah, thank you. And so Megan, just really one more question on that indirect impact. So if we, um, and I can ask it at the end, but I'll, I'll just let you continue. I'll ask it at the end. Oh, okay. All right. Just, just hold it though. We, we want to make okay. sure that we get to it. Okay. Um, all right. So that, that's really exciting to see the, the evolution of data collection, um, um, in this slide. So I think that's really important. Um, all right. Next slide, Tracy. And so this next slide, um, we're going to ask Elise and Hannah to start with some of the state requirements um that that will permeate much of this discussion around client confidentiality so if if um elise you and hannah can start with client confidentiality best practices and then how you report who you serve while still maintaining that confidentiality and then we'll have the rest of the panelists chime in sure so hannah i'll let you're just the whole HIPAA side of everything as, as you are our absolute expert. So the state does have, um, and the federal government for that matter, quite a bit of um, uh, rules and regulations for us on what what we have, what we can share and cannot share. So so the our all of our employees have to go through annual training um, for both the state as well as the county to make sure they are they are very clear on what they can and not, cannot share, whether it's within a program or outside of their program, still within the county, outside of the county, still within um, our, the nonprofits. So if I look at the, the continuum of care, um, 
releases of information have to be signed if anything is shared. Um, so we are very protective of that information. Um, we try to not associate a name with a date of birth with a social security number with an address that is all protected information so um whether whether that is state or federal we are are bound to not sharing any of that um it was when we are pulling data out of a system on what are we going to report how are we reporting that we have to make sure that we are looking more at the numbers and what are the outcomes for that client or what is the um, what is their service plan and only sharing bits and pieces and only on that that need to know. So that is, again, we do have annual training um, that we we are looking at um, when a, a staff member leaves their their access is withdrawn within 24 hours um, of their leaving. Um, I'm just leaving. So we do have the password protection to keep that that data confidential. Um, we are the the training that is done for spam, um, any hacking or phishing that is all done. So that's all part of those best practices to keep that data confidential. Um, we have also gotten rid of paper for the most part. Um, our programs are all under a mandate of no paper. So that when we get to purging our purge cycle, it's different for every program, but we do the electronic purge. We do have some cases um, it, it, that do still have paper because they were created 25 years ago. They're in the foster care system. And, and so that goes under lock and key and that is managed very tightly. We have a records clerk that manages the destruction of those paper files. Um, and there are there's even a, an approval chain just for the destruction. So when we're talking about that, that is all data still. Um, so that's some of our best practices in reference to um, what we're mandated by the state and federal government to, to perform. Hannah? Yeah, sure. I think you gave a really good overview. Um, a lot of what we do is, is similar um, to what Elise was saying. Um, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of the HIPAA law and the substance abuse law because that in and of itself is its own to our training. But um, suffice to say that they are pretty strict, but they do actually have allowances for. Um, they try to support best practice when it comes to coordination of care as much as they're able to, while still um, giving the clients that we serve um, control over their records and control over who is seeing those records. So one example is, um, you know, treatment providers. Healthcare treatment providers can talk to each other without having signed releases. As a best practice, we ask individuals in our service to sign releases for those kinds of things so that they know who we're talking to. But if you look very closly at the HIPAA regulations or at some of the other regulations, you are able to do some um, information sharing minimum necessary, so only exactly what you need to share in order to provide that service to the individual, but there are some allowances there. And we've done a lot a lot, a lot of training within the department about um, what does it mean to be minimum necessary? What can you share? What can't you share when someone from family services is coming and doing an investigation that involves one of our clients? What can we share with them when law enforcement is, um, you know, out in the community and working with some of the individuals that we serve? What can we share with them? What are the scenarios? So a lot of it really does come back to understanding the regulations that your services fall under, um, trying to understand um, 
where flexibilities are and where they are not, and then tailoring it for your organization. And that may look different from place to place. We do partner very closely with our IT department. And, you know, at the county, we have a large IT department, but, um, you know, any any organization, even very small ones, will have some way that you're managing your information technology, your computers and things like that. And there are really simple ways to keep that information confidential and private, as simple as just adding um, a password onto an Excel document that has client information. You are then able to email that document. It's considered um, secure if there's a password on it. You know, you send the password in a separate email so that you're not having the password in the document in the same email. But there are some really simple and inexpensive ways to do this kind of thing. Um, another way would be, you know, if you have a if you have some sort of document sharing um, system, you can control who's got the the rights to access various kinds of documents that could be in um, you know, Dropbox or Google Docs or whatever. You can control that access. And I think some of those kinds of things are really what you want to be looking at as relatively low cost ways that you can still protect um, confidentiality. Um, yeah, and then when it comes to reporting data, we make sure that we are de-identifying the information. Um, if someone is asking us, you know, how many of your individuals have substance use um, diagnoses and are also in the mental health clinic, you know, we can report that number without any concerns about um, confidentiality. The problems would come actually when you get into numbers that are relatively small. And so if we had a request about, you know, how many people are living with HIV in this zip code, you know, if you only had one or two individuals that met that criteria, you you would not want to share that data because that could be easily identified if, you know, you had enough kind of contextual information to actually figure out who that person is. So you really always want to just ask the question, is the information that I'm sharing going to identify this person? Or is there, you know, are there elements of protected health information that I'm sharing? If so, how can I de-identify everything so that I can share information about the population or about the people that we serve without identifying individuals? Excellent, thank you. And Trish, I think you also have a unique um, experience from Loud and Hunger perspective as well. Yeah, we're we're pretty careful. Um, first of all, in our data collection process itself, one of the first pieces of information that is ever given to someone seeking services is our data confidentiality policy. So everyone here who touches data has signed a confidentiality agreement. Um, our database is password protected. We don't release individually identifiable information. When we do referral work, we're not calling up a partner and saying, I have Joe Smith here who needs XYZ. Instead, we're giving Joe Smith the partner's information so that they can make that phone call, which is one of the reasons referrals are tricky to track. Um, we're also, we don't allow photography in our, in our, facility in our at our mobile distribution sites or in our parking lot. Um, we don't allow uh, outside agencies to come in and speak to people who are getting services here. Um, and an example of that would be um, we we frequently get requests from uh, from political parties to come and talk to people to get them to register to vote. We don't do that. Um, we're, we're very protective of confidentiality at our sites. Um, 
and and of client information and we're we're very cognizant of the fact that people who are here are not having their best day they may not want their neighbors to know they're here um, when people leave here by the way they leave with Wegmans bags so when they get home uh, their neighbors don't have a marker that they've been to the food pantry um, and Wegmans is really lovely to donate those uh, just there there's a plethora of things that we do to make sure it, it, you know even when people are coming in for services their names are not used um, when we're parking people it's line 21 is in space six uh, that's that's this, we go that far to make sure that people's confidentiality and privacy is respected excellent thank you all right so on the next slide we do have um some this is this is the last question in the series um, for for our panelists and this is we'll lead off with Hannah and Elise to talk about um, some of the output and outcomes and then um, over to, to Trish and Faustina and Elise for um, the second part. But let's discuss how the data you collect to improve and evaluate services. How do you measure outputs versus outcomes? And then we will go to the second question, um, which is how do you balance that data collection versus what's important for implementing the program? So let's start with the first set of questions that are on the slides, and that's for Hannah and Elise. Sure, I can start uh, that one. So in terms of um, the data we collect um, and how do we measure outputs and outcomes? So we, we measure both outputs and outcomes and just, you know, outputs meaning kind of things that you do, services provided, et cetera, and outcomes being, um, you know, how is it impacting the individual? Are they better off because of the service that you're providing? And, and honestly, there is a really important need for both outputs and outcomes. They can tell you a lot. Um, we, um, because we are a healthcare entity, look to some of what, what those national healthcare standards are. And one place that we look is um, there are these measures called HEDIS measures, which um, insurance companies actually need to report on um, about how the how the members of those insurance policies are doing health insurance companies um, based on the services that they're getting. And so we use that as a national standard. It's it's published by a national um, organization that works with all these different companies, et cetera. And it is really the way that um, federally and at the state level, we're trying to standardize what we're doing. And so even you know throughout the Commonwealth in Virginia, all the different entities like us are, are working to um, to report kind of the same kinds of, of metrics as much as we can. And those metrics are not only outcomes, they measure um, access and availability of care. So can can you get into that service? Is it available? Is there a wait list? Um, what is the effectiveness, which obviously is an outcome. So are, do you, are you experiencing fewer symptoms of depression or whatever the case may be? Um, and utilization, so like how many people are there and how much are you providing? And all three of those are really important. They tell you different kinds of things. Um, but for some services that you're providing, it may not be feasible actually to figure out a lot of outcomes. You know, if, um, you know, if you're providing um, 
food, you're going to say, yeah, I mean, the outcome is how many how many bags did we give? How many how much food did we provide? You may be able to see some of the other longer term effects. You know, are the same people returning? Are they better off, et cetera? But that may not be something feasible for you to actually collect data on. And that's fine. These are really important um, metrics for you. So I think, you know, what the questions that I like to ask are what's going to tell me if the thing that we're doing is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, so if we're providing counseling, what we're trying to do is reduce, I don't know, reduce symptoms of depression is a relatively straightforward one. So we have a measure about reducing those symptoms, but it's also, are people just showing up for those sessions and engaging with us? Because we know that just being able to talk with someone will have an impact on the symptoms. And there's all sorts of things that can impact that influence how an individual is functioning. Um, it may show up in a standardized tool about reduction of depression symptoms, and it may not. And so it's just important to think about, you know, what are we trying to do and what's going to tell me if we are doing that thing successfully? So, so we are very similar to what Hannah just described. Um, when we look at the metrics, we have a three-pronged um, approach of how much did we do? So, so Hannah, we, we use the same words there. Um, how well did we do it? And then is anyone better off? So, so those are the three pillars that we are looking at when we are measuring um, and coming up with those those statistics. And what we are looking for are they are they better off? So, if I if I think of our Child Services Act program, um, we are looking at recidivism. Are the the children Exiting the program, coming back in. If so, how many? Why are they coming back in? Um, so that's looking at at an output versus an outcome. And I agree with Hannah and what you said. We do need outputs in certain measures to understand um, volume. That that question. But then looking at the outcome itself, coming back to CSA. How long are they in care for? Um, are the are the treatment plans working? Do we need to think of other solutions? So when I'm when I'm starting to talk about how are we improving our services, those are the type of measures that we are are looking at. Um, again, that that duration question um, is is the child showing the improvements? If they are not, then we're going to talk to the team. And, and we're talking about now our program and the service and understand, are there alternate solutions that we should be doing? So that data is driving the conversation with the teams to say, let's make sure people are better off. Can we um, not necessarily, I, I, we don't want to rush anyone through a, a service or a program, but are they um, making the improvements or do we need to do a course correction? So that's what we're looking at with that data um, as we are collecting it and really looking at the outcome for the clients um, to make sure that our services are providing them the best possible um, solution that we can. And if not, what changes do we make? So it does force us to do a change management program within the own within our program based on the output of that data that we are collecting. Um, and and look and evaluate ourselves um, and that service and then um, do those improvements, test that improvement and uh, as we're implementing it and then retest, remeasure and it becomes a circular review of of change management and how did we do, how are we doing and are people better off? So that's that is again measuring the outputs versus the outcomes. The outputs, as as Hannah said, they are still necessary, but it's only a necessary piece or pillar in our three prong approach.
Excellent, thank you. And now, um, knowing that we are coming close to the top of the hour, I do want to go ahead and move to the next question, which is how do you balance data collection versus what's important for implementing your program? Um, and we do have Trish, Faustina, and Elise. Um, Elise, I think you you touched on that already with the pillars um, for for implementing and then improving and using some improvement science principles. So um, Trish and Faustina, we'll start with the two of you. I'll, I can go. Um, we we do look at this balance. Hi. <laughs> we do look at this. Um, overall over our entire program. So the, the the challenge here, I think, for a lot of us is that funders want a set of data, right? And sometimes that overlaps with what we need to do program analysis and program improvements, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, most funders don't care if the people that I'm serving want whole grain bread or white bread, but I care. So we're going to collect both of those kinds of data at different times and in different ways. And I will also say that the needs of the people that we're serving are always paramount. So during the beginning of COVID, we did not have the staffing to both get the food out the door and do the kind of fairly intensive data collection that we normally do. And we opted to drop the data collection and just get the food out the door. And, and we did that for over a year before we went, we staffed up enough to get back to our normal data collection uh, processes. The other piece of this is that if we do, and this goes back to one of the original questions in this, if we have someone in crisis, um, we will serve first and ask questions later because the the most important thing in the moment is to stabilize, de-escalate, and move somebody into relative stability. And and the less important thing is to miss data on that one household. Yeah, and I, I think just to, to echo that sentiment for sure, I think our program integrity always comes first. And we've put a lot of work into the model and you know believe in the model and have a lot of evidence showing um, the positive outcomes of using the model that we are utilizing. So I think that we always keep that kind of um, for our clients' best interest first and foremost. Um, you know, we don't have um, we don't have clients that are in crisis, but it's still the same kind of client and program integrity first. So I think if you're not in a position where you have mandated requirements that, you know, federal or state might have, um, you have a little more leeway, like, you know, on hunger relief, maybe taking a backseat and saying like our clients come first. Um, so I think for nonprofits, we do have more of that flexibility, which is which is really fortunate for us. Um, and especially if it's not staffing wise feasible. So even if you're applying for a grant and looking for funding and they want, you know, I mean, just as an example, you know, reports every week or something and you have maybe five core staff people, that's that's probably not going to be feasible for you to apply for. Um, and it might be very distracting to your programming as well. So with all that in mind, you know, I do say that we still balance it with setting our own programs objectives as far as still continuing to evaluate our programs effectiveness. Um, to be able to communicate our organization's efficiency and also the program validity. That includes like the processes that we implement for data collection, for the analysis piece, because I think if you have a real solid program 
kind of evaluation set in place, then you can communicate that to funders and you know that you, you have that validity um, to communicate to um, individuals who are looking for it and to communicate how uh, the outcomes will show that um, your clients have a higher quality of life as a result of your intervention. All right, so we have four minutes left, and I know we have several questions in the chat. Um, we will not be able to get to those, but we will, um, and I, I do promise that we will provide written feedback. Are some really important ones um, related to ensuring that we have correct representation in the data that we collect as the county um, for for your clients, and then also, um, you know getting more in-depth on some of that indirect impact as well as um, some of the strategies for more challenging populations and how that will work. So we will put together in the follow-up materials some written responses to those questions to make sure that you have them. Um, and Tracy, if you can go to slide 34, please. Um, while we are thanking, uh, slide 34, it's the evaluation, there we go. All right. Um, so just uh, we we do hope that you fill out the session evaluation. We will be sharing this. Um, it's it's part of our improvement process to make sure that we are providing the highest quality training and technical assistance for you in the grants process, um, as well as um, any future trainings that you may need. So please complete the session evaluation. And um, we will send the PowerPoint materials, links, and question responses out to you um, in the next few days while we put all that together. And I do just want to say my sincerest thanks and gratitude to our panelists uh, who have taken time out of their busy schedules to join us and help, um, help provide some of their perspective on what those best practices are and how they implement them um, in their own work. So please join me in, in thanking them with either a, uh, a reaction of some sort, hand claps, anything. Thank you to all of you um, who this has been such a very interesting and beneficial training for everyone. So. Thank you all, and um, please let us know if there's anything else that we can do to support you. And have a great afternoon.